Welcome to episode 92 of Pixel Sift. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, we're a weekly video games podcast. We're based in Western Australia, and each week we talk about indie games and the news that is making the news, I guess. Um, we've also talked to indie developers, indie developers like Tim Berman Cedar, who is joining us this week for episode 92 uh, from Canberra, and he comes from Cardboard Keep. Tim, thank you for joining us. Hello, hello. Fun fact, 92 is the year I was born in, so there you go. this episode comes in, ties in meant, quite nicely. Meant to be. Meant to be. Uh, Tim, we first met you at PAX and we played a little bit of Witch Thief and we'll be learning all about that a little bit later in the show. But Scott, what else are we checking out? Yes, before we get to Witch Thief, we'll be looking at video game preservation and the pushback by the industry. Let's jump in, shall we? Visit us on pixelsift.com.au so the idea of video game preservation has come up again with the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment leading the charge to preserve servers and other digital spaces. However, there has been some resistance over the idea from the games industry. So basically there's been a big sort of uh, legal challenge um, and the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, um, otherwise known as MAID, uh, they're kind of leading the charge and they want to have sort of a, a bit of an expansion in the what the definition of the the DMCA or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, they want an exemption, which basically allows them to preserve online video games, so your MMOs and you know your multiplayer games and things like that, in some sort of playable form for the purpose of archive and for history, and so that people can go back and even try them out and stuff like that. So absolutely, well, in 2015, they uh, they added exemptions to the DMCA's um, to essentially allow libraries and archives and museums and places like made to uh, preserve games through emulation, jailbreaking, and other methods. Um, but that didn't legitimise the approach to online online functionality in games, which was, as we all know, is becoming increasingly uh, the norm uh, for your bigger games, especially, as I said, uh, that the members of the ASA make. Um, so, there's like a 40-plus legal document, um, basically a back and forth between uh, ESA and MADE trying to plead their cases. Um, and there are plenty of good picks out there. Um, and there's good reasons from both sides, seemingly. But as you kind of read the discussion a little bit more, it just seems like the ESA is, um, you know, speaking about possibilities where it could be taken in the wrong direction and you and abused basically um instead of i don't know i don't, i just i don't feel like they have as much of a legitimate argument as the side of made well i as we've seen very recently there's been a sort of reoccurrence and a re uh, sort of uh Reemergence, I guess, of um, older games that have kind of come back in. I think that's kind of the main thrust of what they're trying to say is that, you know, these games aren't one and done, even though that the the system has disappeared. But they are, they kind of are though, because that that's I don't think that's a valid argument. So let's say um, the uh, Modern Warfare remastered version that they just released recently, which was huge and awesome, and it was a great game originally. But this remastered wasn't the same game. It was a handful of the original levels and. For predominantly online games, as soon as they're gone, you lose that audience. And as a reason, no, you re- you lose the opportunity to be able to play that. Uh, recently, uh, or recently, I say a few years ago, um, I really liked one of the levels on Battlefield 3, um, Caspian Border, I think it was called. 
um, towards the end of Battlefield. Classic. Yeah, right? Fantastic. And, I, and really what made me fall in love again with the Battlefield franchise. And they re-released it as a pack towards the end of Battlefield 4's life as Second Assault. But it was so late in the life of the game that nobody was on it anyway. And you still couldn't play those games because nobody was on the servers. So, that, that essentially, as a level in a game, is gone forever. Because at some stage, they're, they're going to stop supporting these servers. And I don't think they should. Because I think it's sad to think about games just kind of dying by the wayside. And though, yeah, remakes and retro re- whatever is really hot right now, they're not going to put the same effort they put into it initially. And therefore, it's not going to be the same game. And it's not going to be the same experience. What I think is really interesting about this particular thing is that, um, you know, there has been examples where the the games have been used to sort of study the like disease modeling, the example that always comes to mind, and this is a game that does still exist, but World of Warcraft, when they had the corrupted blood incident, um, mm-hmm. there was this uh, like debuff and it was sort of uh, used by academics to study how people react in circumstances where uh, diseases are in place and people would be avoiding major cities and stuff like that. And that's sort of very, very useful. And But as the game has developed now and as the game's been patched, there isn't a way now for them to study that because that has been fixed. And just for a frame of reference there, as far as how many games are actually online, um, so this is a quote from uh, the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. Online games have become ubiquitous and are only growing in popularity. For example, an estimated 53% of gamers play multiplayer games at least once a week and spend on average six hours a week playing others online. So, like, it is the majority of gaming at the moment. Mm. Tim... Sorry, yeah, yeah, please. Tim, I'm really curious. Uh, you've been uh, we were chatting beforehand about your online gaming uh, experiences, but what do you think about games and, and preservation and sort of uh, efforts to to keep these systems up and running? Well, surely we have to consider who owns the IP and if they're going to do anything with it again. You uh, gave an example of Modern Warfare coming out again, and if it's going to be like it's not the same game, but it does compete in the same space. So if there's, mm. if we jump to the um the WoW example of vanilla WoW servers, which totally existed for <laughs> ages before <laughs> yeah. WoW before Blizzard decided to bring on their own vanilla WoW servers again, right? That competes for the same space as Blizzard's IP. So for them to allow it to exist is also allowing their their own market share to go down. And in the cruel world of business. Their board members will never allow that. They have to fight tooth and nail to prevent that from happening, which is perhaps why we see the ESA fighting so vehemently against it. For sure. But the problem is this is a museum, a non-for-profit, that they don't have commercial interests and they won't be competing on a commercial scale. The ESA's kind of rebuttal to that is that, you know, oh, well, it could be, you know, eliminating the important limitations the register Mm. provided, you know, could ri- the possibility of risk of wide-scale infringement and you know market harm, but it's just it, it's just supposed. It does seem yeah. like both sides are not having the same argument with oh, each other, right? And that's like, the big thing. Like, they're just at the end of this, the wrong things at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're trying to like you know force everyone to you know, force each other to agree with each other. Um, mm. At the end of the day, one side is going to be very, very upset. What I think is really interesting is that ESA kind of their main rebuttal against this was because Maid came out and said, well, you know, there's going to be scholarly articles mm. and sort of research done into mm. that. But their main thing was that Maid doesn't actually have any specific examples of serious scholarly work following its preservation activities. And to, con- to the contrary, it's kind of clear that the Maid's website, that it's a museum and public recreational play yeah. predominates so, over serious scholarship. So just like any other museum, 
you know, it, it costs money and they have a way to make revenue for sure. But it's not the main focus of it. You know, if you go to any other museum, you'll, you know, you can, you pay for your entry or whatever and you can buy poster reprints of, a, of you know, the originals and whatever. Yeah. I don't feel like that's cutting into the original market in any kind of way. It's interesting. I mean, people are good less likely to go to an art gallery to see an amazing painting if they can just look at it on the internet. <laughs> but okay, there's a difference between looking at it and having it yourself, though. Yeah, and I think that's this very is true. What, this is I what think it's, um, Sorry, go on. I think it's interesting that the. Oh, I totally blanked out on that one. Fire. Um, Damn. Well, how about. Okay. About so, just afford a painting. Oh, so museums need to generate revenue, right? Yeah, yeah, they need. Yeah. Non for profit or, or not, more, they less still need are going to them, right? They need to, they unfortunately need to compete in the space for people's attention. And people are more likely to go there if they have something cool, like you know, these old games, which are awesome, and they can actually see a bit of history for what these games were like back then. Mm. And I think that's a really cool thing about preserving video games and saying that these museums and why these museums want to be able to display publicly these games. Very Surely the ESA and their groups wouldn't be getting as upset if the if they made could preserve but not show publicly. Like it seems like it's the whole use of it publicly that the ESA is getting so upset about. And it's really the fear. It's it's less just that on its own, and more the 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 fear and mistrust that it would be looked after and it won't be you know um you know the mm. code won't be stolen and blah blah blah. And that's kind of my issue with it. They're they're talking about it in as as far as you know what ifs, whereas you know if you you, you could you could drum up a million what ifs forever. Yeah, it's a very slippery slope, right? I'm right? pretty sure it's a fallacy. Yeah, a slippery yeah, exactly. slope fallacy, Perfect. and it's like yeah. ah, you do this, and we're all going to die, and video games don't exist. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> There's an interesting guys. The, um, Jason Scott, who's a software preservationist oh, yes. and the proprietor of Text Files, um, he had uh, when Chrono Trigger came out, and I guess this is something that has come up recently because the Chrono Trigger port that just came out on PC uh, was kind of roundly criticised because it's actually uh, it was a port of the mobile version rather than the, the original, mobile version, yeah, Super <laughs> Nintendo version. Um, so it has a lot of things where like there's still touch interface based on on the PC version, <laughs> yeah. and some of the art, uh, like the assets have been sort of redone in a in a strange way like things have been changed and it's not exactly like the real version like if you'd played it on super nintendo so he said there's always been this sort of mishugana mess whether uh, regarding whether an older game is an artifact of history or it's a saleable product merely waiting for a scant scant Mm. bit of programmer attention to make it blossom fully formed into another multi-million dollar seller and it goes bear in mind that this problem exists with all artifacts because people pay money to see stolen egyptian items hey museums charge crazy money for posters and paintings they have and for books about the things it goes, the vast majority of software, though, is never going to be brought back, possibly uh, never found unless someone takes the time to find it. And if it has zero commercial value, maybe not even a ton of historical value, it's all out there too. So, you know, it has to be sort of – you can't operate on the thing that potentially someone yeah. down the track might come down and, and do it. You can't operate on maybes. That's, <laughs> that's it's very scary in the digital space where things don't – like they just they can just vanish like that guy who had that Bitcoin, like a million dollars of Bitcoin or something, and he threw it in the trash oh, like a month before the Bitcoin spike, and it's just gone. Threw a hard drive like, out or something. Like, oh, my God, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like digitally we can destroy things in a way that it will never come back. <laughs> um, it's, it, what you said that was interesting, well, what um, 
sorry, uh, was his Jackson Scott? Jason Scott? Jason Scott, What he yep. said was really interesting there um, in that. Oh, it's, no, I've lost it now. What, the artifacts <laughs> in museums and they make books and stuff like um, that? or Something about the commercial. Oh, that they're only just, just one. Stolen Egyptian artifacts? That is really interesting, actually. He's just mind dropping on, on us. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, that it's kind of only one scant amount of programmer time to turn it back into a million dollar empire. You yeah, know, okay. It was, it's the games that, um, you know, actually get to that level compared to the games that are completely forgotten. You know, there's thousands upon thousands of games that will never be restored or looked after or whatever. And and the problem, I, again, that I have, and I keep going back to it, the ESA is members are the big players. Yes. And they are out to look after their interests. And that's about it. Whereas Made, I feel like they're coming from a better mm. kind of uh, the people's direction. It's interesting. Yeah, it is really one of these things. And I think that's that's the... You can see why they're saying that ESA don't want it to be, you know, an I open slather. I totally get it. But, but you know, there's got to be a, a, a middleman there, a leeway for both of them. Well, it's definitely something that's going to be developing as we go along. Shall we? Um, I guess let's keep an eye on it, shall we? I'm sure there's going to be different <laughs> things. I mean, like, yeah, we'll there are really good examples it. as well. Like, you know, Doom, for example, the original Doom that, you know, we had guests. Uh, yeah. James, Just the other week. Yeah. Uh, James and... Uh, uh, ben from uh, Paddock, who are working on a Z Doom, which is based on the original Doom engine. It's been open sourced and ported oh, to a million different things. And they're things. part of a huge uh, community that do it. Um, yeah. You know, th- th- that's amazing. Yeah. That we wouldn't have had anything to do with those people had they had this kind of, um, you know, uh, activity being had it not, disallowed. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, you know, there's always going to be this potential. And you know what I think the thing is, with the internet, people are going to preserve this stuff regardless of whether or not it's the, you know, they're not going to be doing it for for the purposes of, uh, you know, scholarly studies or for looking at, uh, you know, breaking apart. They're going to do it because they probably want to preserve it anyway. So, you know, maybe down the track we will still have artifacts of these things and we can go at it from a different uh, This was another thing that ESA said that got me a little bit annoyed. Um, and I haven't got the exact quote, so I am paraphrasing. But they basically didn't believe that people would just want to preserve it for the sake of, uh, for the sake of preserving it. They were like, why would you do that? Why would you it's not try and make money out of it? it? Well, I don't think it is strange. It's coming yeah. from, as, 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 as video games. I mean, it's strange from their perspective. Oh, for sure. Right? Like, like people try mind. to preserve stuff all the time. Yeah. Like, it, who uh, hasn't made a time capsule before and stuck it in the ground? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's so hard to respect. It's probably a argument. copy of Chrono Trigger, the classic SNES version, <laughs> in the time capsule somewhere. That's what they were doing with that Atari ET. They were trying to preserve it for the future when they buried it, buried in, it in the desert. Desert. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah so. we preserve it with concrete. <laughs> yeah, they were thinking about the historical value of this <laughs> artifact that they could go and do. So, anyway, it's going to be something that's going to evolve. And, and as we go along, I think it's going to be very interesting. I just think it will be really fascinating to see games that were predominantly a multiplayer experience because, you, as we know, as the people move away from those games... They get lost. Their, their value sort of diminishes and, you know, you can't experience it in the same way that it has. So it's like a time-limited sort of thing. So. I will say as well that this is part of a three-year um, kind of review mm-hmm. of uh, DMCA exemptions. Yep. Um, so regardless of what happens this, this time, in three years' time we'll be dealing with similar things again. We'll be around in three years' time. We'll come back to... We'll bring Tim back on and we can have a find out what other sort of stuff's <laughs> yeah, going on. So. Yeah, lock it in. Shall we jump into the next topic? Let's do it. <laughs> Pixel Sift. It's not Pixel Sift. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift. If you're just joining us, uh, we're joined <laughs> by Tim. He's from... 
Cardboard Keep, uh, and he's been working on a game that we first checked out at PAX Australia of last year. Last year, yeah. November last year. A game called Witch Thief. Now, Tim, if people haven't seen Witch Thief, what is Witch Thief and uh, how would you describe it? I would probably describe Witch Thief as like the love child between Japanese magical girls and witches and bullet hells. So like bullets flying around, (laughs) but... My whole thing is all about 3D. Like I like to create my all my assets in 3D. And in Witch Thief, you are existing in this quirky fantasy realm and you're playing as the snarky witch on her quest to go figure steal the greatest magical grimoire that she possibly can. And I'm sure she's just going to use it for... Generally, you know. Just for funsies, for, you know. For she's keeping it for historical value. Yeah, it's not going to be used. Historical reasons. She needs to preserve it. It's not commercial gains. <laughs> now, it's actually a service blade. <laughs> now, um, Tim, you've uh, talked about making things in 3D. Why is 3D so engaging for you, and why did you want to make a game like this? Oh, that's kind of a... There's two hand, card, card hands there. The first one is, I suck at drawing. Like... Mm. I've always been a much more technical person. My dad is a programmer. I used to make like Doom maps back as a kid. <clears throat> Hopefully they will be preserved as well for all time. <laughs> um, so when I started trying to get into making games, I could do all like the programming and making stuff, but I couldn't make the art assets look good. And then I discovered 3D art. And that's way more technical. It's more about moving vertices around and lining up your quads. And oh, I just loved it. I just dove straight into it. <clears throat> On the flip side, why I like, wanted to make a game about witches shooting each other with spells and magic is. Spells and magic are cool. I love witches. I like to be able to bring in this kind of Victorian, uh, Edwardian kind of aesthetic into it. I'm a big fan of uh, Oscar Wilde's writing, so all the characters try to talk with this very kind of satirical, genre-savvy self-awareness of the situation they find themselves in. So... Uh, we've, I'm not a huge Bullet Hill player. I did play a little bit of the, you know, I guess 1942 in the arcades is probably one that people would sort of be aware of. Mm. And, and we did actually play uh, another Bullet Hill game last week uh, by a Brisbane developer called Assault Android Cactus. But oh, yeah. w- why a Bullet Hill game? Fun story, actually. Tim Dawson came down and we had a chat just like oh. two weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. He was, his studio is Witch Beam, so we've Witch got a lot Beam. of like witchy interests together. <laughs> What does he think of your bullet hell? One, uh, he thinks it's pretty cool. He wanted to. Um, we were talking about having like an auto bomb feature, so like so you can turn it on, and if you die, if you still have a spell, which is essentially the bombs in Witch Thief, mm. it'll automatically cast it for you, which essentially gives you a, a save. You get to get to keep playing. You don't die. You get to dodge the attack, <clears throat> which is totally cool, and we'll definitely be exploring it. It was fun. So we played a little bit of it um, at PAX on the floor, um, and it was really good fun then, but you mentioned that it's kind of developed quite a bit since we've last seen it. What sort of stuff have you been kind of concentrating on, and what have you brought from uh, from the PAX floor experience into the game? Mm. <clears throat> so one of the things we spoke a lot at PAX was the character felt very stiff, so the animations are much more exaggerated now. You actually see her moving around. On top of that, there's way more characters in the game, so... On top of just being more levels and characters for you to experience and see, there's also these environments that you can then delve yourself into. What I've particularly found enjoyable in the past few months is I've discovered, well, not so much discovered, I've been trying out different ways of building my levels, and my new method looks so much cooler and so much better that I'm probably going to have to go back and revamp the early levels to make them feel less 
the early level was very prototypey. It was very much like our previous game Warden uh, kind of level creation pipeline, which made it kind of feel Wind Wakery or like a classic Nintendo 64 style Zelda, very chunky edges. Whereas uh, this new method is far more fluid and natural and realistic. I kind of got inspired because I played the new Doom actually, and the rock formations when you're in hell mm. were really cool. And I was just like, man, I really just want to be able to make these rocks and stick them in. So yeah, it's just coming along nicely there. Now you've got a couple of games on the on the go, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the the studio that you are co-founder of, Cardboard Keep. How long has that been around, and and how does it all break down, and how do you kind of determine what sort of projects you're going to be working on? So yeah, Cardboard Keep it was founded back in 2013, actually. So wow. we feel kind of a little bit old now, <laughs> like five years or something. Jesus. <clears throat> so there's four key me- core members of Cardboard Keep. We contract out some extra work, such as the 2D artwork for Witch Thief was outsourced but uh essentially of the four of us we have tried multiple different ways for developing projects projects like uh puzzle puppers which is released on a switch just recently um kind of just stemmed from a rapid prototype cycle which one of our developers cal created and then jim another developer was like that is so cool and took it away and created this whole different version of that prototype with dogs in it stretchy dogs which is just fantastic um and other methods such as Witch Thief come about more about from I just really wanted to make a game about witches, so I made a prototype and I was like, hey, I'm making this now. And everyone's like, hey, that's pretty cool. You should go ahead with that. So kind of an internal green lighting process of if you can make up a cool prototype of it and can like project how it's gonna work out, like how you're gonna manage to make it, then if people like it, they'll be like, Yeah, let's go for it. How long do you usually work on a project before before you um you know get to that thing? Do you want to have like a quick rapid prototype sort of thing and straight to a game, or do you want to you know make sure something's fully baked before it gets out there? Certainly, faster is always better. For instance, uh, Warden, our previous hard that we all worked on for three years, took three years, which was far too long for a project. So, which thief I'm hoping will be done this year, and it's scheduled. If all the charts line up, it's scheduled to come out this year, which should be awesome. Um, generally, we try to get things visible faster. We don't necessarily need them in front of, like, have a Steam page and be public to everyone faster, but we take them to the game dev meetups in Canberra. We take them to, we show them off internally and make sure we get them in the hands of lots of people to see, is this something people will actually be interested in? How do you kind of compare and contrast? Because we've spoken to a couple of Canberra developers, um, uh, Uppercut Games we spoke to, and we've spoken to Whalehammer Games as well now from from Canberra. Mm. How do you compare the sort of feedback you get from developers versus taking it to something like PAX Australia? The difference between developer feedback and player feedback is can be pretty stark and different. Players, in a sense, are very self-centered. They only care about, am I having fun with this thing? Is it good? If not, they will walk away. They'll be gone. Whereas developers will try really hard to be like, oh, you could make it work this way, you could make it work that way. And if you can get a developer invested in it, that they're essentially being like, oh, I'm going to, like, I can see how I'd want to make this work. They essentially do work for you. Then it's like, you know, this thing is working out because you've gotten, you've inspired the developer to think about how they'll solve the problems you're having. Players approach can very much approach it from a, like, they'll be very honest and be like, oh, I don't like how the character feels give an example from Witch Thief. And it was less about the actual movement of the character and more about the animations. They didn't feel like it was responsive enough in the animations for what they were going around. They didn't quite know how to vocalize it. 
but it was very honest and upfront, and that was that's really valuable, which is one of the reasons I love going to PAX and getting getting the game into the hands of literally thousands of people. It's just fantastic. Well, yeah, uh, at PAX this oh last year, sorry, there was plenty of people playing your game. I actually didn't even get a chance to jump on it because of it. Um, was there lots of useful feedback that you actually got um, last year that you implement, have in, implemented in that time? Yeah, absolutely. The aforementioned uh, uh, animations and then yeah. the bullet bomb saving. Uh, players definitely wanted to... It's less about what players directly tell you and more about what they aren't saying, but they're doing. So if players are getting into the first room and just dying and not understanding how to get past that, perhaps we need you need a better way to show them that they just shouldn't be so close to the enemies, which is we kind of toned down the earlier levels, the early like battle rooms in which they to be simpler. So you can get through them real quick if you know what you're doing, but you also have the safety, the protection of being able to figure out, oh, what are these magical glowing balls flying at me? Uh, so as you said, are you are you planning on releasing the game later in the year? Is there plans to bring it back to PAX uh, new and improved? Yeah, probably. Like, <clears throat> I'm hoping by the time Max comes around, Max PAX comes around, <laughs> it'll be it'll be released. I'm hoping to hit all the consoles then. So I'm currently internally hoping for a May release date. I know I said like January, February at PAX last year. It's the ever hopping uh, release dates. As, as is always the way. But with the success we've had with Puppers on the Switch, I'm definitely thinking thinking more, how can we get Witch Thief on multiple platforms? Which is a cool problem to have, in a sense, because it means that we are less worried about releasing and finishing it, because that's going to happen in like the next month or so. But more thinking about what comes after that. What is, how are we going to get it deployed successfully on all these different platforms? And going to PAX, showing it in 2018 at PAX, would be an awesome way to show it off and be like, hey, now we're on the Switch. Now we're on like the Xbox or something such. Like that would be very cool. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic to see so many great uh, indie games reaching onto Switch this year and, and it would be great to see even more. I think the indie, uh, we've said it before, but Switch is such a great platform for indie games, I feel. Mm. Uh, and, and it's great that we see them supporting it too. Anecdotally as well, the people that we've been speaking to throughout the shows, it seems to be it's increasingly a, a part of the mix now of, of release cycles. Previously, mm. there would be a you know a Steam release or a PC release to start with yeah. um, and then moving on to consoles later, but it seems now it's front and centre for yeah, what we people. Found, what we've seen with Puzzle Poppers, getting that onto the Switch, is that Nintendo have knocked down a lot of the barriers in the way of getting it onto the Switch, which does mean the Switch very potentially will become very flooded in the future. However, it does mean that it's very easy for people to be like, oh, we will put getting it on the Switch on the roadmap and have that have that as a goal. Some of the other consoles can be very cumbersome with a lot of material like paperwork that you have to kind of dig through to get them onto, their, onto the platforms. But all the consoles are making it easier and easier every year, so it's awesome. Now, you've got another game that's uh, available called Attrition. Um, that's If people want to... Well, could you tell us a little bit about that one as well? Yeah, Attrition Tactical Fronts. It's a quick turn-based strategy game for about one to two players. You can play single-player through a 17-map campaign, which uh, challenges your tactical uh, wits. Or you can verse it up, you'll take yourself and verse a friend. Ideally, the matches take about five minutes, oh. as little as five minutes, while offering a lot of strategic variety and depth. Is it uh, it's mobile if you drag, based or if is you it... actually get your mission? Uh, it's all it's PC, Mac, and Linux at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have been like, "Oh, because it's hex based and turn based." Everyone's like, "Oh, you could put this on mobile," but uh, 
I'm kind of in Cal's realm. That's his baby. I've got Witch Thief, so and then Attrition is his little his his darling. So it's nice that you've all got. He's your kind of sitting back and taking the feedback. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. It's uh, it's kind of, we've kind of all cross skilled. Like we trade, like learn from each other in our previous projects, and as a result, kind of picked up the skills that are run our own projects parallel. It seems like an interesting sort of uh, sort of structure you've got there yeah, that you've dynamic. actually got. Um, you know these own little you know own projects well, and you then- get to do your pet mm. projects that everyone else kind of helps each other out and like fills in the gaps that, that yeah that's what a ama- amazing structure mm. yeah we like to consider ourselves a collective rather than necessarily oh, a company nice yeah. well it seems to be and- working fantastically so far puzzle papas i have not played it but it looks a hoot it's look. just the kind of thing I like, to be honest. People love doggos. <laughs> I yeah. know, right? And and I like puzzles and anything that stretches out. What are we talking about there? There's a couple of games <laughs> push that Push Me, looked, Pull You. Yeah, Push Me, Pull You and um, the genital, genital jousting as well. Um, anything in that vein. You probably don't it want to put genital me, jousting in the same category as puzzle puppets. I think if you're going to be putting that in your marketing materials. Oh, but. They're both very colourful. That's yeah, true. They're, they're, both, they're all fun. That's, <laughs> so. I mean, they're guns. They're supposed to be fun. So... Well, That's look, it. Tim, if people want to find out a bit more about all the stuff that you're working on and, and see some more about um, Witch Thief, uh, where can they go if they want to find more info? Yeah, if you want to see all of our Cardboard Keep stuff, just check us out at cardboardkeep.com or follow us on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> likewise, you can jump onto Steam and find all of our games there. So That's Attrition, Tactical Fronts, or Puzzle Puppers, also on the Switch now. And, of course, Witch Thief, <clears throat> which you can also find at witchthief.games. Is there, there is a build of that available for a purchase... Is there not from itch.io? Oh, yeah. If you, if you, yeah, if you jump to itch.io, you can grab a build of Witch Thief. It's a, <clears throat> I will be updating it shortly with all the new changes I've been talking about today. Oh. So, uh, <clears throat> hopefully with the new library level in it, which I've been having an absolute hoot working on. This is this something that's lovely about Redwood and like book stacks that just, oh, yeah. just go to the rooftop. You, <laughs> you can look at it and you can just smell it. The smell of knowledge. Smell the literature. Of archival right? information as people <laughs> have taken online video games oh, and put them into the show. I'm excited as that. <laughs> Tim, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And we're um, really excited to see the game as it, uh, as it sort of progresses and looking forward to playing it a little bit later uh, in the year as it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty much the end of our show tonight, but thank you very much for joining us. You can find out more about everything that we thank talk about much. and all of our previous guests. Um, maybe we can make like a little Canberra uh, section and we can have all the people there who can talk about yeah. it. Um, our website is pixelsift.com.au. And if you haven't been there recently, it's been revamped and we've got a whole bunch of stuff on there. You can check, check out all the cool stuff we put up there. Now, Scott, we've got uh, some older stuff that people can check out as well and how else should people go and have a look at that? Um, of course, you can check it on facebook.com forward slash pixelsift, twitter.com forward slash pixelsift, twitch.tv forward slash pixelsift, and youtube.com forward slash pixelsift. Hey, so you, any uh, any social media slash <laughs> pixelsift. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stream episodes, subscribe either on iTunes, Pocket Cast, or RSSS. Link on our page. Spotify. Spotify too, yeah. Spotify as well. If you're on there, Google Play if you're in the in US. America, yeah. yeah. All of those sort of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I think that's it. That's it. All right. Well, look, <laughs> Tim, it's been a real pleasure. We're really excited to check out the game and we uh, can't wait to, to play it a little bit later in the year. Yep. Thanks, Tim. No, thanks very much, guys. Catch y'all. See ya.